The CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, Jamie Dimon, he lives on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, 1185 Park Avenue. It's the kind of apartment building that's more like a castle. It's got these huge Gothic arches, and there's a big interior courtyard you can drive right into. It's the kind of place you move because you value quiet, privacy. Jamie Dimon, escucha! Estamos en la lucha! And that's probably why over the last year, protesters have decided this building is a good place to be loud. This group is chanting, Jamie Dimon, listen to us. We are in this fight. Washington Post reporter Tracy Jan has been writing about these protesters. And most recently on Valentine's Day, a group of them actually went back to Jamie Dimon's apartment in Manhattan and tried to serenade him. He didn't actually show up. But they had a mariachi band there. And then um, some of them actually eventually went to J.P. Morgan later that morning to deliver yet another petition um, asking the bank to divest from private prisons. These protesters are immigration rights activists. They know they can't control the Trump administration's approach to border security. So they're trying to control something else, the people who fund it. Last year, private prisons that detain migrants along the border got nearly $2 billion from America's biggest banks. A lot of their corporate leaders, CEOs, have actually spoken out against Trump's immigration policies, uh, most vehemently against his Muslim ban and also repealing DACA, as well as the separation of um, children from their families last summer at the border. So the, so the CEOs are speaking out, but they're still making money off of things. Right, and that's, that's the hypocrisy that these advocates are trying to call attention to. Last week, these protests seemed to pay off. J.P. Morgan released a statement they would no longer lend money to the private prison industry. But there are other enablers. Today, Tracy's going to tell us who is and isn't taking action and why. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. What made this particular story stand out of activists protesting banks and sort of demanding that they divest from private prisons? Why was it particularly interesting to you? In this case, the fact that a bank actually did something is, one, unusual and interesting. And not just one bank, but three banks have publicly said they were divesting. Frankly, Wells Fargo and U.S. Bank did it very under the radar. U.S. Bank there was no publicity about theirs until I called them and I asked them and they told me there had been, they didn't announce anything. They just responded to my questions and told me that they were in the process of extricating themselves from this investment. Um, Wells Fargo did it 
they mentioned it in a really broad corporate report that came out in January. So the fact that J.P. Morgan Chase, the nation's largest bank, is doing this is pretty significant, especially when other competitors are doing similar, making similar moves. For those people who may not know, I'm just sort of trying to wrap my brain around how big the private prison and detention center industry is. Do you have a good idea about that? <laughs> no. Um, I've seen estimates of anywhere from beyond 50 percent to three quarters of immigrants that are held are held in private prisons, and the two largest ones being GEO and Core Civic. And they've been controversial because uh, immigrants have been harmed. I think they've even died. Um, you know, under the Obama administration, private prisons were used in the beginning, and Obama had deported and detained of a lot of immigrants. Um, towards the end of his administration, he pulled back, and the government was no longer going to be doing business with private prisons for this purpose. Trump brought them back, and their stock soared at the beginning of his administration. So their stocks go up and down depending on political whims. And so that's another reason that these corporations have chosen to divest from them, because while they might not go as far as to say, you know, we are divesting from private prisons because we don't agree with President Trump's policies, there is no doubt a financial risk in investing in them because their stocks change depending on whether it's like a popular vehicle for containing immigrants at that time. It's interesting because what you're saying is that these banks can kind of get the credit for no longer investing in these private prisons, but that in reality, this might just be a smart business move for them. Absolutely. That's right. And frankly, they wouldn't be doing this if they were going to be making a ton of money from this. It's they've, The banks have told me private prisons are a very small part of their portfolio anyway. So it sounds like pulling out of these arrangements won't really hurt the banks. Right. But I am, I am sort of curious, these private prison groups, how much is this going to hurt them? Because they're the main targets of these protesters, right? Right. And critics would say, and advocates say they're watching for this, but critics would say, well, you take one bank out of it or two or three banks, but there's still like Bank of America and other financial institutions that will bank these private prisons. So... As long as they get money from somewhere, it doesn't matter who it's from. And these advocates or these activists are saying that they're closely watching to make sure, one, these banks that say they're divesting actually are, and then two, they say they're going to put equal pressure on whoever steps in to fill the void, assuming someone does. Your reporting also focused on how big tech companies are getting involved in this immigration debate and detention debate generally. But the conversation's going really differently with those companies. Why? The short answer is that they have much more financial incentive to stay in the game. A lot of them have built their businesses on government contracting. There's a history of tech and government defense industry contracting going hand in hand. Well, I guess I know I know that I know that banks would fund, you know, lots of kind of private industry. But tell me a little bit about how someone like Microsoft would get involved. So Microsoft, so, micro, so let me let me focus on Amazon for a little bit because a lot of attention was drawn to Amazon last year when it came out that they were actively marketing to ICE their very controversial facial recognition software called Recognition. 
And there are questions of civil liberties related to that, um, also of racial bias in terms of how accurately they can identify folks. And as a result of that, there was like a whole resurgence of public pressure around Amazon's work with ICE. When an Amazon spokesman got in front of New York City Council and defended their right to sell facial recognition technology to ICE, he got booed down by protesters. But this kind of activism doesn't seem to be having the same impact on big tech. Not yet. Tracy says that's because it's harder to know where to draw a line. Like if ICE is using Microsoft Word, is that a step too far? Or is it okay? What's interesting to me is that everyone kind of assumes big banks, they're just not seen as a potential force for good, I don't think, in the United States, in the way that the tech companies are. But it seems like they're not really feeling that dissonance. That's right. That's that's actually a very interesting point, right? Tech companies like to present themselves as the the equalizing force for, you know, democracy. And even Microsoft, which holds itself out to be like the moral force of tech, they were um, criticized heavily during the height of the protest against family separation because one of their um, leaders had written in a blog post earlier in the year, very under the radar, um, talking about how proud they were to get this ICE contract. That prompted the Microsoft CEO to clarify, saying that their contracts with ICE have to do with emails and just basic software issues, not directly tied into family separation. But then for activists, there's a you know fine line. How much are you enabling an agency to do its work just by providing them the basics of computing? Yeah, I wonder where you think the conversation goes from here. Because these big banks are out of the role of funding these prisons, but the tech industry doesn't seem to feel the heat in the same way, and the government isn't changing anytime soon. So is this really a victory? Yeah, that's a very good question. It could be a symbolic victory, but a hollow one if more companies don't follow suit. You know, we'll see what Bank of America decides to do. If it were just J.P. Morgan, it could easily just be a symbolic victory. But the fact that Wells Fargo and U.S. Bank have also made the same decision, and now there's going to be pressure on Bank of America and other banks. I think SunTrust is another bank that finances private prisons. I did reach out to them, and they declined to comment the, the pressure will continue to be on these um, tech companies. It's just a matter of whether they bow to it. And they have less of a financial incentive to do so. Tracy, thank you so much for explaining all this to me. Thank you. Tracy Jan is a reporter at The Washington Post. We'll be right back. Before we go, one last rabbit hole I fell down today about emojis. Yeah, the little pictures on your phone. A few days ago, I heard we were about to get a whole lot more emojis, like more than 200 more. And for the first time, we're going to get the ability to have interracial couple emojis, little figures with different skin tones holding hands, which is pretty cool. And it made me wonder, who even makes these decisions? Like, who's in charge? So, okay, the AP article on this, it was titled Emoji Gods Approve Skin Tone Options. Do you consider yourself an emoji god? I don't consider myself in a, you know, any kind of form of deity, but I do feel, you know, a, a heavy burden on of social emoji responsibility on my shoulders. 
This is Jenny Eight Lee. She's a journalist, used to be with the New York Times. And while she won't cop to being an emoji god, she's about as close as they come. In 2015, I was very indignant that there was no dumpling emoji. And I had no idea where emoji came from. But, you know, in texting with a friend, I was like, my God, the system is broken. Because clearly, um, you know, emoji are kind of universal. And dumplings as a concept are universal food, whether or not they're pierogi or empanadas or ravioli. So I just like went on the internet and was like, where do emoji come from? And found the Unicode Consortium. In case you missed that, Jenny's talking about something called the Unicode Consortium. And if that sounds incredibly official, it's because it is. Emoji are overseen by the Unicode Consortium, which is a nonprofit organization based in Mountain View, California, that has um, a set of, you know, full voting members, most of which are U.S. multinational tech companies, you know, Google, Facebook, Apple, Microsoft, um, Adobe, IBM, Oracle, a Chinese company called Huawei, a a German software company called SAP, and the government of Oman. So these organizations pay $18,000 a year to vote. They have full voting privileges. But there's a there's a you know a interesting little loophole, which is that you can join as an individual for seventy five dollars, and have no voting privileges, but you have the ability to show up at the meeting. And you did that, right? I did. Yeah. Got an email when the next meeting was, which was at Apple, um, and so I just showed up, and it was very funny. Because, you know, it's like a group of engineers that have been working together mostly for about 25 years or so. Yeah, what did they say when you walked in the room? I think they were really excited. I mean, they were they were very welcoming, right? Because they don't see a lot of new faces. So, you know, it had the whole vibe of, uh, you know, they were like, um, thank you for coming. We're so glad to see you. Tell us about yourself. And it really had that vibe of going to a new church for the first time, right? Like a lot of like older, friendly white people. And it was at this meeting I discovered there was an emoji subcommittee. I was like, "Uh uh-huh, well, I need to get on that. And it took some amount of persistence. You know, they didn't know if I was going to stick around because, like, some people kind of pop in and pop out, right? But it sounds like you just kind of kept showing up and kept saying, hey, I'm here and I want to talk about emojis. Yes, I think, I mean, to a certain extent, the Unicode Consortium very much rewards people who do work which is how Jenny became one of the people who decides which emojis show up in your phone or on your Twitter or anywhere else. Um, In fact, my call right after this is the emoji subcommittee meeting, which is an hour and a half of my life every week. Um, And, you know, you discuss all the proposals and all the policies and then you kick them up. You like recommend them or don't recommend them to the full committee. And then once a year, they make a final decision on the emoji that will come out. And so those emoji, including the interracial couple emojis, or technically their inter-skin tone um, emojis, will be available at the, you know, sometime starting the summer and to the end of the year, depending on how, you know, quickly the different platforms roll things out. Jenny takes requests, by the way, through a website and emoji advocacy group she founded. It's called EmojiNation.com. So of the 70 or so new emoji that showed up on the on your phone the end of 2018, Emoji Nation did 45 of those, right? Through like all the science emoji, the llama emoji, um, 
if the lobster has a lobster shown up, the lobster emoji. So if you feel like your emoji alphabet needs an upgrade, get in touch with her. Submit a proposal. Woman's flat shoe. That one. That one's actually gotten a lot of attention. Um, you know, one piece bathing suit instead of the sexualized bikini. That was one of ours. Um, maybe, just maybe, it'll actually end up on your phone. Onion and garlic. Um, yo-yo. I don't know. Do yo-yo show up yet? Like. All right, that's the show. By the way, I want to welcome all of our new listeners from TuneIn Radio. You guys picked up What Next is a featured show this week. Oot, oot. Also, happy birthday to Jim Newell, our favorite person on Capitol Hill. Don't worry, we're going to drag him back into the studio soon. Just not today. He needs some cake. All right, everyone. Talk to you tomorrow. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I'm host of Amicus, Slate's podcast about the law and the U.S. Supreme Court. We are shifting into high gear, coming at you weekly with the context you need to understand the rapidly changing legal landscape. The many trials of Donald J. Trump, judicial ethics, arguments and opinions at SCOTUS. We are tackling the big legal news with clarity and insight every single week. New Amicus episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen.